Hello, our country pals. It's me, Melanie Tate, one half of the Mel and Kim super team. Now, before COVID struck, I was a playwright and now things are getting a little bit back to normal. And one of my plays, The Appleton Ladies Potato Race, is coming to a theatre near you, I hope. It tells the story of what happens when Penny decides to try and make the prize money of the Appleton Ladies Potato Race equal between the men's race and the women's races. And the whole town melts down. It's a comedy. It's pretty funny. Um, I mean, it's like funny. It's about something that's not funny, but it is funny. Um, (laughs) Its original six-week run in Sydney sold out before it even opened, and now the original cast is hitting the road over May and June across New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria. And there's a brand new production happening at the State Theatre Company of South Australia in Adelaide too. Here's the thing. I know that you'll love it because it's got a fair bit of ACP DNA in it. A bunch of it's actually set in the local doctor's surgery. And I really wanted the nearest big town to be called Burrigan, but was talked out of it by the director at the last minute. So I would love you to come and see it. You'll need to book fairly soon, though, as most of the theatres it's going into still have limited capacity. The Appleton Ladies Potato Race, it's called. We'll link to tour dates in our show notes and on the A Country Podcast Facebook page. Thank you so much for listening to this message. Now on with the show. This is it. Hello, hello. I'm Melanie Tate and this is a country podcast where I'm joined by lover of Wandon Valley, woolly jumpers and wombats, Kim Lester, to dissect the greatest Aussie small town serial drama featuring doctors, vets, farmers, police and publicans that ever was and ever will be a country practice. Hey Mel, I forgot to put plumbers in there. Um, exciting ep today because for those of us who are a bit too young to have loved and adored Molly Jones, Joe Loveday was our goddess. Oh, uh, wasn't she? She sure was. I wanted her hair, her politics, but most of all, Kim, I wanted her boyfriend. <laughs> and it is that boyfriend that she married in the episode that we've watched today. And we chatted to her as well for this episode. And now that we've had that conversation with her, I actually just want Josephine Mitchell to be my best friend as well. Is that stalkery? You know what, Kim? Ordinarily, I would say yes, but I think she might want to be your best friend too, because <laughs> you will note in in, uh, on Twitter when we said something about her being on or it was somewhere or maybe even a message between all of us, it was you she talked about <laughs> being wonderful. It wasn't both of us, it was specifically you. So I think she might want to be your friend too. Oh, yay. I, I fully accept. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get going. Kimothy. Did the wedding bells of Wandon Valley help you get over the trauma of Brisbane's pre-Easter lockdown? Crikey. Oh, it definitely helped. Uh, Yes, this week we're talking about uh, Season 9, Episodes 13 and 14 on the threshold. After a long friendship but a very short courtship, it's time for Joe Loveday and Michael Langley to get married. It's a garden wedding, but Mm. uh, it wouldn't be a TV wedding if it was all smooth sailing, would it? So, of course, there are a few hiccups in the lead up. Esme is tasked with both the catering and the dressmaking. Poor Esme. It's no wonder. And the hen's night. (laughs) And the hen's night. God, it's no wonder that she doesn't have the wedding dress ready until the morning of the (laughs) wedding. (laughs) And if you thought the tooth in Simon and Vicky's croquembouche was gross, 
I was truly disturbed when an escaped goat got stuck into Joe and Michael's cake and salads because I honestly thought that when Esme said, we can fix this, <laughs> her solution was going to be to tidy up what was left and serve it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Aboriginal Uniting Church pastor Steve Murray, played by Gary Foley, is passing through the valley with his niece Kylie Walker. We've talked about Gary Foley's role in a previous episode of A Country Podcast, and because we don't watch these episodes in order, this is actually the beginning of mm. the storyline that we discussed last season in Episode 7. Kylie is excessively thirsty and she needs to stop for yet another wee, so they pull up at a servo where she is racially abused by a pair of young boys and a passing Dr Alex shoes them away. Steve wants to get Kylie out of town as soon as possible, but on the drive out of town she slips into a coma. Kylie is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and Alex does her best to both treat the condition and be the best well-meaning white lady that she can possibly be. But uh, Steve helps her to understand some of her cultural blind spots, like how fearful his mob are of hospitals because so many people from their community, like Kylie's mum, die in hospital. That's what I'm worried about. She won't like it. When our people go into the white man's hospitals, they're afraid they won't come back. Finally, the wedding storyline, Mel, and the health storyline come together when Joe and Michael's very clumsy celebrant gets himself shot in the backside with a tranquilizer, which is meant for an escaped goat. So Steve steps in to marry the couple. Mm. First things first, Mel, what did you think of the wedding? Okay, I love this wedding because I am now fully in love with with Frank Gilroy. <laughs> and it's a showcase of his beautiful garden, really, isn't it? And he's Oh, that garden is gorgeous. It's just so incredibly beautiful. Um so I love the wedding. And I also love how they're all outdoors having a lovely time at the end. Like honestly, Kim, in my old age, I'm a little bit cynical about weddings and how stupid they are and what a waste of money and patriarchal and blah blah blah. Look, if I, was gonna, I don't disagree. Yeah. I'm married and I don't disagree yeah, with any but of it. <laughs> if I was going to have a wedding, I'd want this this exact wedding. Mm. This exact wedding. It was so beautiful right down to Steve as the minister. Like everything about it was beautiful. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was really lovely as well. And a garden wedding is just so gorgeous. Where though, Mel, do you rank it since you are such a fan, since this has changed your mind about weddings and the entire <laughs> institution of marriage, where do you rank it on the list of TV weddings that moved you? Have well, you figured out a favourite? Yeah, I think that, I think as a kid it was probably number one, but I've I figured out my absolute favourite. Oh, Kim. <laughs> that was try that a soda again. Soda water, gross. I shouldn't have soda water before. Soda I just, water and nuts seem like yeah, the worst poor choices yeah. for <laughs> podcasters. You can leave that even if you want so that we can share that gift with even podcasters with your, forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, Kim, my absolute favourite TV wedding of all time is – Again, another wedding that makes me want to get married and have a wedding is um, Parks and Rec when dear, dear Leslie Nope and Ben White get married. Oh. And they get married in the Parks and Rec 
place and in the office isn't in it the or office. in the yeah yeah and they've got this make-believe they couldn't even find a dress so they made her a dress out of newspapers That's remember right. <laughs> but it's just so beautiful because they're such beautiful friends and all their friends that are around whole relationship is beautiful it is that, it's that such whole an, it's an adult beautiful relationship isn't yeah. it what about you yeah. have you got a favorite one um, do you know, I, I had to read through a lot of lists of TV weddings yeah, to too. figure this out, which I think suggests that maybe I don't have a favourite and that I'm not particularly moved by TV <laughs> weddings. Um, I love the, Ben. I think I love the relationship more than the wedding. Yeah. And I do love that relationship of Leslie and Ben. We're actually rewatching Parks and Recs as oh. a family. Oh, so lovely. Yeah. But um, I guess if we're going along with that theme, I might say, um, Liz Lemon and Chris's wedding, which was equally quirky. Uh, Liz Lemon's dress. This is in Thirty Rock. Liz Lemon's dress. No, as... Liz Lemon got married. In oh, 30 did you Rock. not watch Thirty Rock to the end? Yeah, I thought I this did. Was like what have I the missed? Final season, I think. Is that James met... Marsden? Yes, she she met and fell in love with James Marsden. And they just decided to get married one day because I think they had to do some paperwork and they needed to be married for it. And so she just quickly gathered a few people, went to the courthouse, dressed as Princess Leia, and um, <laughs> and they got married. <laughs> but um, I should leave it there, but I feel like I did set out to try and find a good Australian wedding. Oh, yeah, yep. And I think I'm going to have to go with... Not Kath and Kel's wedding of Kath and Kim, but Eponie's wedding. In the future, oh, <laughs> there I is an episode. Go- Kylie Minogue plays an adult Eponie. Yeah. And they don't actually have a wedding ceremony, but you get to see the reception and it is very uh, quintessentially Kath and Kim. How fantastic. It's funny you should say that. I was just watching the other day the last episode of Kath and Kim, oh. which is her wedding to uh, Sharon's oh. wedding to Warney, who's not Warney. Oh, yeah, I don't funny. think I watched. I don't think I got that far right. with Kath and Kim. It's, it's I'm gonna have to. Yeah, it's all seek it's out really, that it's last really season. Funny. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Yeah, oh, that's great. Well, weddings. You know, the thing is about a country practice, though, we can't just have a wedding episode that's just pure wedding and love and light. No, we have to. We have to delve into some issues. There has to be some dying livestock. There has to be some. <laughs> serious health issues and in this case there has to be some uh, very big social issues as well which is the handling of racism yes and yeah and Aboriginal what, what we do know and if you want to go back and listen to episode seven to go about this is we do know that Gary Foley was very very involved in the writing of these episodes mm. so you can really the voice that his character has is his voice yeah uh so what did you how did you feel watching that knowing all that we know about the Gary Foley character and also about where those issues are today Kim Um, I think the thing that gets me every time I research these episodes, particularly researching the social history side of things, is when I look back through the archives of newspapers, particularly on Aboriginal health issues, but also environmental issues and um, women's rights issues and really all the stuff that I feel like we've been fighting for decades to change is that not very much has changed. Mm -hmm. And I find that really frustrating. I don't know if I'm being unfair, but I don't think I am. It does feel like you could word for word put some of the articles from the newspapers 
And some of these issues that are raised in a country practice, you could mm. put in today's, you could put on Twitter and it would would not feel mm. outdated. It would feel like it's still going on. Since 1991, there have been 474 deaths in custody, mm. Aboriginal deaths in custody. And just since the beginning of March, there have been five Aboriginal deaths in custody. So it doesn't feel at all like it was out of fashion for what's yeah. going on today. Yeah, it didn't feel like we've that like that much has changed. And mm. even actually just I thought it was really interesting Alex's reaction to it all. I guess the most relatable thing for me as a white woman, a middle-aged white woman is to hear how the well-meaning middle-aged white woman is responding and how uncomfortable she feels mm. and how much she just wants to do the right thing and say the right thing and and be open-minded and I guess what I really like about that is how it demonstrates how you can learn you don't need to um I think that trying to word this in the right way I think well-meaning people can be defensive about how they're called out for how they yeah talk about race or um, their unconscious biases or, you know, any of that. And wouldn't it be so much better if we just listened and heard what somebody was telling us and and heard your ideas and what you're saying is either unhelpful or misguided or, and there is actually, let me help you understand why. Mm. Wouldn't it be so much better if you just went, yeah, okay, can you help me understand why? And I feel like that's what Alex did, which is really good. Which is great. Instead of feeling attacked, which was awesome, which a lot of people would feel attacked. Yeah. And it was great that she just went, oh, I'm so sorry. And once you feel attacked, you shut the conversation down and then the conversation doesn't happen and that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. And we end up 40 years later still in the exact same It's super complicated, isn't it? Because... Mm. You know that oh, it's so it's just so it's so super complicated. We could talk about yeah. it all day long, but that's a really to, to listen is a really um, excellent suggestion of you, yeah. uh, Kim. Kim. I think it's the best thing you can do, really. We're on Zoom at the moment, and as you, <laughs> <laughs> as there's you, a man, there's a man in my backyard. Oh my! I'm gonna I'm just gonna be an Esme. I feel oh I feel scandalized. I hope. <laughs> I hope nobody, I promise I won't tell anybody uh, that there is a man behind you at your house. In my home when I'm unchaperoned. <laughs> so just so you know, if there's some sounds, some drilling, you'll know what's, oh what, <laughs> what's going on. I'm having screen doors put in and uh, and I'm just having the last bit of it done. So if, if we have to just Excellent. stop or anything like that, that this might be a nice funny fun time to segue. There are a few <laughs> funny things. Why did that farmer shoot when the celebrant <laughs> was clearly in the way and why didn't Frank charge him with being dead? Oh, no. What have you done? Right, you winged the celebrant. That was absurd. So there was a there was a herd of escape goats because you can't have a wedding day in Wandon Valley without someone having to get caught in the mud with livestock. And some animal hygiene. We just need the animal yeah. hijinks, don't we? For you a need animal hijinks in Wandon Valley. It doesn't. The formula <laughs> does not work for a wedding. There are no animal hijinks. Animal hijinks. And, and cookie. It also needs cookie Bob and Esme hijinks as well. Uh, yeah, hijinks involving food, involving yes. the crucial <laughs> guests' food. Uh, actually, the more I think 
about it, I do wonder, did they just pull out the script of Simon and Vicky's wedding and, and just, just go, like, okay, how can we rework this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surely they, it, it'll be interesting when we do Lucy and Matt's wedding too to yes. see whether they do the same thing. And didn't they end the whole series with a wedding? They do. They end the whole It was Terence and Rosemary's wedding, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And there's no animal hijinks in that. Isn't there? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. Um, so the animal hijinks was that uh, some goats <laughs> in quarantine. Is that why they needed a police escort uh, out of town? It was just like a trailer of I think I was five on my or phone six goats. When that was being yeah. <laughs> and they escaped. And um, because okay, they escaped because Bob was riding a what was that horse and cart thing called? Like a single horse and a and a little wagon. It's um, like a sulky yeah, it's, it's or a, a silky. Yeah, because they do them at the trots. Um, yeah. It's called a trots. No, what's it called? Oh, here we go. Can you hear the drilling? Yes. So mm. Bob Bob and Cookie and uh, Joe's little sister, who wasn't invited to the wedding until the day of, um, were, sorry, <laughs> were riding along on the little silky, which, again, I don't know if that's the right word for it, and the little horse and cart thing crashed with the trailer full of goats and the goats, of course, escaped, which meant that um, they had to be captured. And there was a group of men trying to help, one of whom was the wedding celebrant for some unexplained reason. And he just wandered down to the goat and stood right in front of it. And although he was right there in front of the goat, the gun, the farmer still picked up the tranquilizer gun and shot <laughs> The, go- the goat, but also and it was always the going- man standing right in front it of the goat. always going to his bum from the yeah. second he arrived in episode one. <laughs> he was, there were, uh, hijinks were, were going to befall him for sure. Mel, you've worked in the theatre. Is playing clumsy hard to do convincingly? I'm sure it is. I don't. He wasn't convincing, I'm sorry to say. I don't yeah. mean to be rude. But it did make me think it Maybe that is actually quite a skill to play clumsy convincingly. But some, to drop things without looking like you've intentionally. Well, that's the whole. But that's the whole thing about being an actor, isn't it? It's just so <laughs> difficult to do. I don't mm. know what the answer is. I think actors are just special beings, and some of them are more special than others. <laughs> and some of them are better at looking like <laughs> they've right. actually dropped a cup. That's yeah, exactly. We should try. I mean, I would be terrible at. It. Oh, can you hear that? Do you want me? To- <laughs> yeah, it's getting a bit loud. Yeah. Just one other thing I want to mention, Mel, mm-hmm. and I didn't say this in the recap, but one of the storylines involved um, Kathy and Terence finding some sick horses. But poor old Shane Porteous, you know, he told us when we interviewed him last season that he was allergic to horses. Yeah. And Terence even says in the episode, oh, I can't come any closer. I'm allergic to horses. Why did they make him do that storyline? I don't know because he doesn't even just say it once, Kim. He says it twice. He doesn't need to be there. No, he doesn't. I think maybe they just didn't have anything else for him that week. But they were also giving him a bit of a vibe with Kathy Hayden, I thought, even though he was married to Yeah, there was a weird moment where he looked back and smiled or something. Yeah, there was sort of like a little bit of a vibe. So, hmm. So, Kim, what is the social slash medical issue of the week can I guess because (laughs) my internal dream self is a GP is a doctor oh yes yes. and I had diagnosed one of the conditions in this well before Dr Alex did yes and you probably did too but probably because of awareness raising like this episode well yeah and also I was I, I remember there was a book I read as a kid that I was quite obsessed with um 
there was also about this medical issue. Plus Mm -hmm. I have my own personal connection to this medical issue, which I will tell you about. I don't have it. We talked about Aboriginal health policies last season. So I thought I might dig into the actual medical condition uh, of this episode, which is of course diabetes. Or as they say in Woody Allen films, which are on the nose now, obviously, (laughs) diabetes. These episodes first aired on the 13th and 14th of March 1989 and among rising interest rates and the fatwa on Salman Rushdie, people were talking about the greenhouse effect in March 1989. Twelve European nations had just agreed to ban the production of all chlorofluorocarbons, Mm -hmm. better known as CFCs, and from the way I said that you can understand why, by the end of the century. And Even the Queen was spreading a clear message of environmental protection. This is what I mean when I say I read articles from the 80s and I go, why are we still talking about this stuff? So I found an article from March 1989 on the day that these episodes aired Mm -hmm. quoting the Queen talking about the greenhouse effect. Now, uh, this is my best queen. I, I suspect you might do a better queen than me, <laughs> so maybe I'll send you the text. The threat to the environment <laughs> takes many forms, <laughs> that wasn't very good, of which some are so far-reaching that it is difficult to grasp them, she said in her 1989 Commonwealth Day message. We hear, for example, the uh, possibility... Excuse me, where's the, op- where's the accent gone? Oh, sorry. We hear, for example, <laughs> the possibility of radical changes in our climate. (laughs) This is so bad. It's a very serious message, Mel. In our climate, leading, among other things, to a rise in sea level with all that would mean for small island and low-lying regions. Queenie, babe, we know all this. We know know. all this. (laughs) Why are we not doing anything about it? Anyway, um, and also uh, at the time that these episodes went to air, a massive hit was number one this week in 1989 oh yeah what are you gonna no, say so, th- so this is so exciting because my birthday is march the 12th so i would have been nine ah, this is my birthday week when i was ah, nine your birthday week okay can you guess what it is they're scottish twins with aching legs who are they yes Mel? they are i would walk 500 <laughs> miles is, is that what it is yeah yeah it's oh, the proclaimers that's, 500 that's such miles such a great song great yeah Still a massive hit. (laughs) Yeah. So as I said, I thought I might look at the medical issue in these episodes, which was diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, which is the condition that Kylie Walker was diagnosed with in ACP, is an autoimmune condition in which the immune system is activated to destroy the cells in the pancreas, which produce insulin. I promise I'm not going to get super technical with this, with everything I'm just going to say, consult a physician if you have concerns. <laughs> Symptoms include excessive thirst, which Kylie, this was that was that the moment you diagnosed it? Well, I diagnosed it because my best friend and the boy I had a crush on both had type 1 diabetes. Ah, so I actually really wanted type 1 diabetes <laughs> as a kid. Like, what an idiot kid. No, that's a kid thing. Yeah, Kids isn't it? Because they, like, they had their needles and, yeah. and stuff like that. Oh, God, yeah. it's so bonkers. But, yeah. No, so- I used to love. I, I, you know, my grandmother had diabetes and I did used to find it really interesting to watch yeah. her um, get she the do her insulin? finger prick and the insulin, yeah. yeah, all of that. So symptoms include excessive thirst, passing more urine, feeling tired and lethargic, insatiable hunger, having cuts that heal slowly, itching, skin infections, blurred vision, unexplained weight loss, mood swings, headaches, feeling dizzy and leg cramps. 
Type 1 is more common among people under 30 and it accounts for about 10 to 15% of people with diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is often a progressive condition in which the body becomes resistant to the normal effects of insulin and or gradually, um, (laughs) sorry, just the irony, the irony as I'm talking right now about type two diabetes, Mel, my husband has just texted me McDonald's question mark. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I need to say um, Subway actually. Don't they have Zambrero? Zambrero yes, Zambrero. For some, for some healthy. <laughs> Why don't I say maybe maybe Guzman and Gomez? Yeah. <laughs> Although, do you know what? I just became obsessed a few weeks ago with calorie counting mm. and yeah. Guzman and Guzmao are so high in calories. I'm sure it would be terrible. Off the charts. Like they're okay. um, deleting, yeah. deleting, deleting. But yeah. Macca's, and Macca's, you know what you're getting. Macca's Big Mac is like 600 calories, so that's off the charts too. That's all off the charts. Um, anyway, just have your diabetes meal tonight, Kim. Like you can uh, have, you can have, if it's Friday night we're recording this. I mean, surely you can have. I'll just say you guys get your thing. Hang on. You guys get your thing. I'll get mine later. Full stop. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're really allowing our listener into our textual messages the last couple of episodes, aren't we? I know, we really are. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, okay, I'm just going to rewind. Type 2 diabetes is often a progressive condition in which the body becomes resistant to the normal effects of insulin and or gradually loses the capacity to produce enough insulin in the pancreas. Uh, It's associated with lifestyle risk factors like poor diet, having McDonald's for dinner. Um, Kim, can I just say... Like now I feel like McDonald's for dinner. You know, (laughs) whenever somebody mentions McDonald's, like have you ever, um, have you, did you ever watch that Super Size Me movie? Yeah. I swear to God, I was the only person who walked out of it and went and had (laughs) McDonald's. McDonald's. (laughs) The whole time. It's just such a like deeply ingrained. That chip that doesn't decompose looks so good. (laughs) Do you know the terrible thing? So I've, I've got a gastric sleeve. The terrible thing about gastric sleeves but the really good thing about gastric sleeves mm. is that McDonald's, so McDonald's food I've discovered since, because I can only eat it really slowly because it's so bad for you. McDonald's food is terrible after it's not piping hot. So if you, uh, and it takes yeah. me about half an hour to eat anything yeah. from McDonald's and it's just disgusting cardboard five minutes yeah. into it. Yeah. <sighs> it's one of the great Which tragedies. Which I think is... The and thing also- that makes me feel most sick after McDonald's is that I eat it so quickly. quickly because I want it to still be nice while I'm eating it. <laughs> well, because there's not we've we've discussed this before, Kim. I think every hamburger is just trying to be a Big Mac. It's the great <laughs> hamburger. Anyway, sorry. Back to. Um, oh, and please, if you have any of the diabetes, we don't uh, mean to be. We're not. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it's it's a it's a horrible condition. It's very very hard, and I'm sorry that we're making light of McDonald's, but it's yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm a I'm very prepared to say I'm a high risk of diabetes. Well, I don't know about high risk, but I'm definitely at risk of diabetes because both of my grandmothers had it. Right, and I'm type now two or one. I'm pretty sure type two mm-hmm. with both of them. My gram the grandmother that was alive when I was born. I don't know for how long she'd been doing it, but she did have to do the insulin and the that's type one usually, isn't it? Isn't well, it? I don't, I yeah, don't, I don't know because we've had so many yeah. advances and yeah. yeah. Anyway, I probably shouldn't. This was the thing that I avoided trying to really figure out, although I did try, was exactly 
like what the treatment is for each because yeah right yeah because it does vary anywho um yeah no so both of my grandmothers had diabetes and if you have a hereditary um if you know like you, if you have a hereditary predisposition to it plus <laughs> poor diet and exercise then obviously you're more likely to get it and my I don't know if it I think it was actually before COVID. I have barely exercised in the last 12 oh, months. Mel, me I have just found it. it so hard to find mm. the just the will. will. Yeah. Like, let's let's be honest. It's time, yeah. And, yeah. like, I'm at an age where it is just hard to yeah. get out of the house oh, and not bring yeah. two small children with yeah. me. But, yeah, just finding the will to exercise How is really hard. How far is McDonald's from your house to walk? Two. Oh, no, it's not walking distance, oh. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> I'd have to walk up some pretty <laughs> steep hills too, which is helpful. Uh, oh, God, I feel so bad that this whole conversation about diabetes has been hijacked by McDonald's. It is kind of a demonstration of the power of McDonald's, the, the social issues that are um, impacting the rise of diabetes in our uh, It's funny, across isn't the it, world. how we know more about diabetes, we know more about what impacts our health and stuff like that. So it makes no sense that, all these things are increasing, does it? Yeah, I I don't want to go off on a wellness tangent. I don't want to be like Pete Evans about it. Yeah. But I do I do kind of think that like the sugar in our foods is really addictive and totally. bad for us. And you know, like I don't I, I try to steer away from talking about it because I don't know like all the mm. sciencey stuff. Like I don't know the difference between what, what I've read being science and what mm. I've read being wellness influences yeah just and the fact that we've talked about mcdonald's yeah and i don't know about you but i feel like mcdonald's for dinner now i know I it's everything you need to know <laughs> i know about. and i feel like mcdonald's over the top of it being very uncomfortable for me to eat too. yeah That's the, you yeah know, like, and you still do it yeah 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 anyway um diabetes. so diabetes has been around for millennia it's not although it is wow. a very big new social problem the actual illness has been around forever um there's references to it uh to things like frequent urination urination and sweet urine smelling and tasting funnily enough in ancient texts from egypt to china to india and it was in the 16 and 1700s that scientists began to discover the role of the pancreas in diabetes so that's when they started to learn a bit more about it before insulin was discovered in the 1920s, treatments included bleeding, opium, that old chestnut, and providing the patient with extra nourishment to compensate for the loss of nutrients to urine. These patients were told to eat as much as possible, including extra large quantities of sugar, which unsurprisingly killed a lot of people. Wow. Then physicians began to notice that fasting seemed to improve the symptoms and a variety of uh, sugar-free, low-carb diets became the popular treatment. But even on a strict diet, the life expectancy for diabetics before insulin was discovered was no more than three or four years. Like oh, it was basically so a death sentence. Term- right, right. Gosh. It was a term. Yeah, yeah, it was terminal. So when insulin was discovered by researchers in Canada, it completely transformed the treatment of diabetes. It wasn't long before patients or their carers could administer injections at home using reusable needles that had to be regularly sterilised and sharpened. Just imagine how full-on it would have been. And also they had to be administered several times a day as well with the early type of insulin. It took a few years before they could develop a longer-lasting version of it. The insulin came from the pancreases of cattle, 
usually cows or pigs, supplied by abattoirs. But by the 1980s, there was concern that the prevalence of diabetes was increasing so rapidly that demand for insulin would soon outstrip supply. Just as well then, that new developments in biotechnology led to the genetic engineering of bacteria to manufacture human insulin, which came onto the market in the mid 80s. So there were a few really big developments in diabetes in the 80s. And it, like when I go through these newspaper archives and you can actually see how many times a particular word appears across a certain mm -hmm. time frame. So for all of the 1970s, it was something like 480 mentions in mm -hmm. Australia. For all of the 1980s, it was 3,700 and something. Wow. So massive jump. And then into the 90s, it doubles again to like into the 6,000s. So huge jump. People are suddenly very aware of diabetes, talking a lot more about diabetes. And this is the time that it's starting to become a worldwide epidemic as well. I, as I mentioned, one of those big developments was the creation of that lab-manufactured insulin. The second development was a machine that allowed patients to measure their blood glucose daily from home. So as I mentioned, my grandmother had diabetes and I just used to be so interested in watching as my grandfather went through the steps of pricking her finger and then putting it on the little strip and then putting it into the machine that you'd like it would bring up a digital measurement of her blood glucose and then he'd give her the injections and that was just like this oh, daily sweet, routine that I used to love watching I know it's I don't know yeah it is really sweet it is actually a really sweet memory that I have of my grandparents because they lived with us for a little while before my grandmother died the other massive development in diabetes was much less positive uh, diabetes awareness was increasing but so was diabetes itself particularly type 2 diabetes in 1991, Diabetes Australia said that the condition had increased by 50% in the previous 15 Oof. years. Yeah, and was expected to increase by another 50% in the next 15. Oh, my goodness. Today, and I think they said at the time that about 250,000 Australians had diabetes. So this was in 1991. Today, around 1.2 million Australians have diabetes. That's a big uh, percentage of the population. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really big. Um, and this is across the three types, I think three types. So there's type 1, type 2 and gestational diabetes. But it is type 2 that is far and away the most prevalent. So about 85 to 90% of diabetics are type 2. Did you get gestational diabetes? No, I did not. But I did have a very big baby. So that's one of the things to watch out for if you... I think even afterwards, if you have given birth to a baby that's more than four and a half kilos, which, hello, I have. How big was Patrick? Actually, he might have been just shy of, I think he was 4.43. Um, but he was big. That's big. That kid. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's still big. He's a big kid, though. He's like, gorgeous. he's very tall. Yeah. So, sorry, today, 1.2 million Australians have it. Wow. And it's estimated that a further 500,000 are undiagnosed. This is according to Diabetes Australia. And I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. I want to finish on a message of awareness that came from ACP, mm -hmm. although this time it wasn't cooked up in the writer's room and given to a jobbing guest actor of the week. I found this article from the Sydney Morning Herald in 1988 titled mm -hmm. How TV's Bob Hatfield Learned He's a Victim. So Bob Hatfield, a.k.a. Gordon Piper, had diabetes. 
Next Bob time you see or, Bob or Gordon? No, Gordon. Gordon Piper right. did, the actor. Yeah. Next time you see a country practices Bob Hatfield leaning over the bar, sharing a drink with his mate, Cookie, take a closer look at his beer. It's not beer. It's a low-sugar, low-kilojoule, non-alcoholic soft drink designed especially for diabetics. Beer is a definite no-no for Gordon Piper, the 56-year-old part of the Wandon Valley Furniture. God, was he, he only 56? Gosh, people look different, didn't they? Or in are we 88, just getting, yeah. Are we just getting yeah. older? So actually, you know, I just like... I know, yeah. Mm. I do often wonder when, when am I going to feel like... I'm older than like Nina Proudman, for example. Like we I look are at Asher so Ketty. much older than Nina Proudman. I know. <laughs> I don't feel like it yet, though. I don't. I don't see offspring and go. Oh, they're all so young. They're so much younger than yeah. me. <laughs> I would probably look at the Secret Life of Us people. Oh and my god, they, totally. They're way younger than totally. Me. I um I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's fifty two, and I was saying I just can't get over how hot lollipop people are now. <laughs> And he's like, That's Do you mean the people who stand outside schools people, or just road any? people, you know, the right. stop-go people, they're yeah. so hot. And he said it's partly because there's a lot of backpackers doing it, but it's mostly because oh. you're getting older. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I was thinking from now on I'm only having friends who are 10 years. Because I said to him, I must look like a brand <laughs> new a brand newborn baby to you. You're 52 and I'm 41. He said, well, yeah, absolutely. So I just decided I'm only having friends now in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Right. Okay, so in. should I just pack up my things well, and go then? <laughs> no, we're contemporary. What am so I? We chopped still, liver. Yeah, we're contemporary. So we age together. We don't notice each other Okay, aging. so it's all right? Yeah, okay. we can stay friends but I'm not making any new friends who are okay. under 52. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, back, yeah. back to Bob. He discovered he was diabetic 12 years ago when he started developing itchy palms, tingling in the feet and regular trips to the toilet. I thought it was the end of the world. It was like being told you've got the big C, I suppose, but certainly diabetes is not as serious as the big C. But in the 1970s, mm. so if he discovered 12 years earlier, so that's like 76, mm. Mm. how was that for some quick math? Um, that actually would have probably felt like yeah. a much bigger thing than by 1988 when you could measure blood glucose at home and, and insulin was amazing. different. Gordon's advice to other at-risk people is keep your weight down, avoid stress as much as you possibly can, and if you have any symptoms of skin peeling off your hands or itchy palms, and if you're getting up more than twice a night to go to the toilet, see a doctor immediately. Great advice, and I am going to, as I said, put the link to Diabetes Australia Great. in our show notes. So Great. interesting, as per. Thank you, Kim. I hope it was. <laughs> I really struggled this week. <laughs> Me too. It was good though. It was good. So coming up soon, we're going to be joined oh, yeah. by Joe Mitchell. But first, shall I, um, should we talk about some people in the episode? Yeah. Who have you freed from the IMDb vault this Well, Kim, week? here's the thing. There were lots of interesting side characters in this ep that I'd love to know more about, but I really got into dead ends with them. Like the young actor playing Kylie Walker, I couldn't find anything about her. I wanted, I thought maybe the opera singer or mm. the belly dancer from the Bucks and Hens Well, nights. can we just briefly explain that? Because that made me lol. That actually made me lol when that opera singer started singing. <laughs> or screeching, so, as, um, screeching. as Cookie said. So, of course, Bob the hens and bucks nights were held on the same at the same time. And why in TV are they always the night before the wedding? I think that that might have maybe it is only TV land that that happens, yeah. but I think that maybe used to be a thing. Right. I don't know. 
Matt had organised the entertainment for Michael's uh, Bucks Night and he'd organised a belly dancer and Esme organised a woman from the Burrigan Operatic Society to come and sing to them. With the most amazing boobs I think I've ever seen. (laughs) And when the poor woman showed up at the pub, I could tell straight away she wasn't the stripper. Well, her her name was meant to be Fatima the Fantastic or something, wasn't it? Oh, God. Oh, God. I feel bad now having just said stripper because she wasn't a stripper. She was a belly dancer. I could tell straight away it wasn't her, but it, I genuinely didn't realise she was going to start belting out opera <laughs> and it made me lol. <laughs> I love it, it when great. it country practice makes me, me too. lol. There were lots and the, and the, bell, and the um, hens party was full of lols yes. too because they, of course, got the belly dancer and Esme melted it. down. <laughs> she did. Can you she, actually she play the audio? She was as scandalised as I was yeah. when that man appeared in your background. Can we play the audio of that because it's so yeah. funny? <laughs> I've never seen such exposure. I'm sorry, Joe. Oh, it's all right, Miss Watson. I've found a whole new use for my tea towels. So we're going to spend this week looking at the really extraordinary life of the actor who plays our beloved Vernon Cookie Lock. Oh, fantastic. So the information for this biography I'm about to give you really comes from all over the place, but mostly Aaron Miller's brilliant work on a country practice Articles Facebook page where I pieced together a bunch about Sid's life through all the articles that Aaron has really painstakingly collected over the years and shared on the Facebook page. So thank you, Aaron. Sid Halen, he was born Harold Charles Sidney Halen in Redmark, South Australia in 1923. His dad was a tough old bloke, a carpenter and a blacksmith, and his mum was a war bride from the UK. The dog! She's so annoying. Just come in or come out. Come on, quickly. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Okay. Now, the family moved to Sydney when he was about one, and I don't think he had a great childhood, but I can't figure out why it was rubbish. He says in some interviews it was tough, yet his dad helped him with times tables, etc. But of all, of course, all of that can be true. You know, your dad can be helpful and also a pain, you know. He was only 16 when he signed up for World War II and he found himself on the Kokoda track and eventually where his talents were best utilised in the entertainment troupe. And remember our interview with Matt Day, Kim? Mm. And he said Sid had some pretty hectic stories about the war, but mm. they're certainly not part of any of the new idea or woman's yeah. day stories that I found. <laughs> Can you imagine the editors just going cut, cut, yeah, cut, yeah. cut, cut? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Sid Halen was married first to a woman called Dorothy Plater, who I think must have been a normal because I can't find any trace of her anywhere, you know, like that they were a vaudeville act or anything like yeah. that. He then went on to marry a woman who it would seem was a great love of his life. Uh, her name was Patty Britton. He had two children with her, Sid Jr. and Julie, and the family would become a quadruple club act. That's all in the future for now, but he and Patty were a club act together as well. Now, when Sid got back from the war, he studied drama at Melbourne University, which I was really surprised by because that, yeah. that sounds very haughty, doesn't it? And he sounds really like, you know, like a jobbing actor going around the traps. So yeah. it was kind of interesting to read that. He was soon getting comedy parts all over the place. He was on TV from the very beginning of TV, both as a comedian as an actor. And he was a regular comedian on a show called Sunnyside Up for 10 years. It was on for wow. 10 years. And our older listeners might remember it with legendary comedians like Maury Fields and Val Jolay, who some of our younger but older listeners might remember from Hey Hey It's Saturday. Isn't it amazing? You think about a show like this, Sunnyside Up, was on for 10 years. Mm. Those people probably would have been the biggest stars 
And yeah. we don't even know that show now. No. Yeah. It's ama- and it speaks well of how the legacy of Married at First Sight will probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably go on. Oh, that'll be forgotten in like three years. Oh, my God. Surely. That show. Oh, my God. Because it's so, it's so part of the saturation of media that there's like, you know, once it's gone, it'll be, it'll you know, be I mean, who, who's talking about, I don't know, pop stars now? Or, Sophie Monk probably is somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Belinda Chapel. Do you remember all their names? I do. <laughs> like Tiffany Wood. <laughs> who else? Who else? Um, I can't remember the other one. Katie Underwood. And oh, there's yeah. one more. There's one more whose name I'm not remembering. Anyway. Uh, Sally someone. We'll go into that with our Pop Stars podcast next, <laughs> next year or the year after. So back to Sid Halen. He had a great career as a character actor. He appeared in everything from Matlock to Mad Max 2. He was in Mad Max 2, the movie. There you go. But had he felt, no idea. Yeah. He felt like his big break, Kim, had come with this show called Arcade. Now, it was a soap on Channel 10. It co-starred somebody you might know called Lorraine Desmond. <laughs> I think I've heard of yeah. her. Get, Met her. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And get this, Kim, Arcade Mm -hmm. was a soap opera about the people who inhabited a shopping arcade, which I think is a really great idea for a show. Yes. How have we not had that? Well, the reason reason we haven't had that is because it's thought to be one of the greatest flops of Australian television (laughs) ever. Um, Interestingly, Sid played a tailor and a dry cleaner. He was pretty sure it was going to be his big break, so he was Devo when it was cancelled, I think, after one season. But can I tell you another cool bit of ACP? Um, trivia with it is Guess who wrote the theme tune. I'm going to play a bit of it. Ah. Maybe you and I. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's on YouTube. Very love boat. It's great. Um, Have a guess who? Can you guess? Uh, I mean, obviously, Mike Pajani. <laughs> yeah. Correct. I'm guessing it wasn't Terence. <laughs> Shane Porteous. <laughs> well, who would know with Shane Porteous? He can do I so exactly. many things. He's so talented. <laughs> but, yeah, the other really cool thing about Arcade, though, is guess who was watching it? Was it Jim? Jim Davin? Yeah, Jim Davin was watching it there and he loved Lorraine and he loved Sid Halen. So he's like, your show's been cancelled. Come do my show. I actually remember him telling us that. Yeah. So you're so good. Mm. at. Re- I, had, I felt like I'd never heard about it before. Then... Cookies created for him. It's kept on the show because of the great chemistry between him and Bob, who were just these tiny characters to begin with. And, you know, like Esme Watson just became the characters that Jim Davin would go to the writer's room and say, have you got something for Cookie and Bob this week? (laughs) Interestingly, ever the hustler and ever knowing about how fickle the industry can be, he had a club act pretty much the entire time ACP was on to earn as much bank as he could while the sun shone. Bit like Cookie but not dodgy like Cookie, you know? No, yeah. There's also a newspaper article talking about how JNP Productions knocked back his request to be the brand ambassador for Mazda. (laughs) (laughs) Mazda Mazda wanted him to do some ads and um, JNP wouldn't let anybody do ads that they thought were outside of what, yeah, outside of the remit of the characters Ah, and stuff. So interesting. Ray Desmond was allowed to do those anti-smoking ones, but they were seen as PSAs. Yeah. Quite interesting though, isn't it, when if you think about it, he went and did his club act everywhere. I don't know. Anyway, so, mm. so that's it. Now, he also released a bunch of albums, including the very successful Cookie. I've got a bit of a, a little bit of some audio from one of the songs I think you'll really enjoy, Kim. 
I feel like I've turned on community radio at 9.30 at night. <laughs> Just one more line. I think I'm Wandon Valley, Wandon Valley is my home. <laughs> that is brilliant. Isn't that gorgeous? Um, he was pretty much, he was plagued with bad health, Kim. Like he sort mm-hmm. of had about nine lives. He had to have a brain operation in the late 70s. He had a heart attack in 1981. I can't figure out if it's before or after ACP started. And the reason you saw him drinking OJ on ACP is that, you know how they're always, got, he and Frank, they're always on the OJs. Anyway, yeah. So he's, he's on the juices though because he was apparently a long-term member of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. He's a recovering right. alcoholic. Um, he died at uh, just the age of 73 in 1996 in Queensland with complications of a stroke. Mm-hmm. But the really beautiful thing is he left us that gorgeous character, which we can watch nonstop and laugh. Do you ever not laugh at Cookie when you're watching the show? He's so great. And there's a fantastic moment. Late show fans will know this. Yes. I nearly, um, do you know about this one? I nearly played this. Yeah. Tell us oh, about right. it. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the late show used to have this thing at the end of each episode where um, uh, Mick would say, I've got a big act to end the show on. I've got um, uh, Joan Jett. And as it turns out, he got Joan Kerner, which was actually quite yeah. a coup. And apparently Julia Gillard, I think, was in the band. But anyway, that's a bit of trivia for another yeah. day. And one week he said, we've got Van Halen, everyone, Van Halen. Oh, oh no, I I got Sid Halen and uh, Sid Halen <laughs> comes out and performs a song. Like, he performed a whole song. It was great. So great. Well, look, let's let it, him um, sing us to chatting with the brilliant and lovely Joe Mitchell. Valley is my home. I was quite a uh, introverted young lass and my mother was quite a uh, a dominant person and um, she decided I should go into acting, so I did. What a thing to be thrown into when you're an introvert. Are you glad she sort of did that for you? Uh, Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course, because I have only ever had brilliant experiences working and I always knew I was going to go into the industry somehow but I did think I would be behind the camera. So I did a year production course doing cinematography. And while I was doing that, I was doing modelling and getting money and doing commercials. And that was always a good thing to have money. Hmm. Um, And I also did um, some crewing in the theatre. And then my modelling agent sort of put me up for uh, country practice because in those days, anybody could go up for anything really. And they did look to um, modelling agents and and that sort of commercial sort of manager for um, auditions. How close to Joe Loveday or to Joe Mitchell is Joe Loveday? <laughs> probably a lot. <laughs> she, I mean, I, I mean, you know, if I say probably a lot and then I say how wonderful she is, I'm, I sound really up myself, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I guess one thing is um, she was quite a bit younger than you, wasn't she? Yeah, she was so when I went into the show, she was 13. Wow. And I was I was 19, so yeah. What was it like playing a 13-year-old at, at, by 19? 
Well, I was still a 13-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, you know, I, I mean, I think every woman, no matter what age you are, you can be like a 13 or a 15-year-old, can't you? Mm. You know, you can still hook into those feelings because they're not so far away from wherever you are in life. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, Jim wrote her so she was really bright and she was really clever but she was she was sort of a bit of a hustler too. I've got to say I'm not a hustler. Hmm. She was very knowledgeable because she'd spent most of her time, um, she never really had a family, like one area where she stayed until she got to the valley and I think that was that was something beautiful that we did explore over episodes. You know, at certain times she had the opportunity to leave, um, like when um, Judy Loveday left. She could have gone with her, but she didn't want to. She wanted to stay in that family area with um, Shirley and Frank. So that was that was sort of a, a very um, mature, I think, hmm. and world worldly wise thing to do. I'm not sure I had the world wise thing either. Actually, hmm. actually, come on, talking about it now, I probably was not like her at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Joe was always standing up for what she believed in, you know, workers' rights, the environment, nuclear war, etc. Was that something that yeah. you brought to the character or, or was that something that was written in? No, that was definitely written in. I can say that, not that I was not unaware of these mm-hmm. types of issues, but I'm, I'm, she was so, you know, make the poster, get the people together, do the protest, mm. which I think was a bit of Molly as well. I think they sort of loved that in the Molly character. So they, they wanted to keep that and it kept it very relevant. Country Practice was an incredibly clever show. Jim was so clever because he kept it all relevant. It's still relevant now. That's why I think people love watching it even, you know, 30 years later. And it didn't mm. rely on gimmicks either. Like like um, I think it was Jim Davin's interview, he said, we weren't blowing up cars every week and putting people in jail every week and that sort of stuff. What you said about Molly really stuck with me because I think I've been musing on this theory over the last week or two that depending on what age you were when you started watching a country practice, you probably, and particularly I guess for young girls, you probably either desperately wanted to be Molly or you desperately wanted to be Joe. And I'm of the age that I desperately want to be Joe. So um promise I won't stalk you. Yes. Yeah. I think um I do think they had similarities. Mm. And I think it was so incredibly brilliant as an actor, is still incredibly brilliant as an actor because she was so joyful. And on screen, no matter what she was doing, there's this inner joy that Anne always brings to something and I think not that I was imitating her because I I have to be honest I didn't actually really watch it a lot before I got on it but I I would like to believe that Jim you know wrote that into that character as well and that I was able to grasp that and and show that she wasn't she wasn't as groovy as Molly you know Molly was an incredibly fun groovy looking out there chick whereas Joe Loveday was I think because of what had happened in her childhood you know her backstory of never actually having a home and that that was not really applicable to her she you know she was I, I got a met probably at 19 I was looking to be really cool and there are you do have a segment which you do the fashions yes yeah. which I love it <laughs> uh, because at the time I mean I've you know watched a couple of episodes 
back and I look at it and I go, oh my God, what was I thinking? What what was the wardrobe mistress doing to me? Mm-hmm. How, how on earth look like that? And it wasn't until later, the later years I was there that I actually did have a bit more input into the wardrobe, I have to say. When when Jo Loveday went through her second-hand look, that was all mm-hmm. me, you know. I was going to say that's pretty typical of going from 13 to 18 though, isn't it? You don't have much say when yeah. you're 13. <laughs> God, no. Joe, what was it like to act that romance out like with Michael Langley, uh, played by Brett Climo? Well, it was lovely because Brett's a lovely, lovely man and he was a lovely young man, younger man. He was also, he's also a very good actor. So when it, when he first came into the show, it was, this was going to be Joe Loveday's big romance. So they brought us in and, you know, they all chatted to the writing department and the producers chatted to us and it was going to be this huge storyline, which, of course, it turned into being this huge storyline. But it wasn't going to be an easy ride, of course, because he was somewhat older than her and um, he was not looking to uh, be settled down with anybody. And, of course, you know, Hello, the Policeman was her father, Sigar. <laughs> and I think, too, that, during that time, there was another, and I've forgotten his name, which is terrible. I should have done some research on this before speaking. Are you going to talk about Peter Manning? No. Oh, no. okay. She had a crush on him at one point. Just a crush? Yes. Yes, no. but, I mean, he was her teacher. I know. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, no, there was a, a lovely boy who was a guitar player and he came in and he played the guitar for her and she thought Michael was never going to look at her, so she decided to throw her hat in with this guy and he was lovely it was a lovely act we had a great time together and of course I was not going to show at that time so he had to leave and she had to decide to stay in London Valley and then there was something happened and she looked after him and he saw her in a different light and what it was was that he had to see her as a sort of a grown-up person before he could allow himself to um, fall deeply and madly in love with her. Again, it was beautifully, as as, as far as I'm concerned, every storyline I had in that show was beautifully measured and the plot twists or the obstacles that we had to overcome were well thought out and in the instance with Michael and Joe, it was very romantic. Mm. You know, I think it set the bar very high. It certainly did for me in my private life. <laughs> so my own bar was set very high, but it is wonderful to to, to let you know that I achieved that. Oh, I'm so glad because that's actually really, when you were saying that about how lovely the storylines were, I started thinking about that. What must it be like to be involved in a romance like that on television that was so perfect and respectful and loving and then going into real life. I mean, do you have to find somebody who is an actor with that sensitivity who's gone through the same thing as well? Or can you find that out in the real world quite easily? Like how did how did how did life translate for you after having that beautiful romance on screen? Well I was having my own beautiful romance off screen at the same time. So um, it was a very romantic world I was living in. Joe, we have just been talking about the Bob Hawke episodes where Bob Hawke came to town uh, because yeah. of Joe's activism. What was that like? It was so thrilling. We only had him for a couple of hours 
uh, of the day of shoot. So everybody was really quite pumped in terms of, you know, we had to do it well and we had to do it once and then he had to go. And he only did it once. He only did the speech once. I don't think there was any pickups or anything. It was like he got up there, he did it and he left. Because, you know, Prime Minister, a bit busy. Mm. <laughs> um, but I've got to say, his personal charisma, which comes over in the episodes, mm. was extraordinary. When I also, because I did actually watch like scenes out of that and his speech in particular. And then I got, uh, I went into the Bob Hawke rabbit hole, quite frankly, and I watched <laughs> a bit of him doing other things on, like he went on the Ray Martin show, the Mike Walsh show. His interviews were so good. You know, he could answer the question, give you policy, and yet look like a human being who was one of us. Mm. And actually came over in that episode, you know, he came over with the same concerns that we all had about, you know, the pr proliferation of nuclear arms and, and making nuclear stuff back then. And it wasn't bollocks. It just wasn't, he wasn't selling anything. He wasn't saying one thing and then doing another. And I so miss that now. And I know we shouldn't talk about politics, but, you know, I mean, we don't have the same sincerity. I was so thrilled that I was actually the, the catalyst, <laughs> not me, but, you know, I felt personally responsible. Oh, my God, the Prime Minister of Australia is on the show. <laughs> Did you get to spend any time with him? Not very much, no. We had photographs taken. We sort of got introduced, of course, and he mm -hmm. said, you know, we had a few words in terms of, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, me, oh, wow, you're the Prime Minister of Australia, and him like, yes, that was about it really because we really did literally have him, I think, for two hours. Jo, who were your most important relationships on set? Would have been Lorraine. Originally it was Wendy um, Strato, who I love and adore and I still see. Occasionally we go walking. Wenzel, Brian Wenzel, of course. Hmm. Uh, Brett, I mean, Brett uh, worked on A Place to Call Home, which my husband produced. So I saw a bit of Brett um, during that. And um, all of them, I mean, everybody was great. The script department were amazing. Jim was amazing. We used to have a wonderful chef at JMP called Ruler who was amazing. <laughs> you know, everybody was great. All the Channel 7 crew um, the camera got, it, it was just, it was a very, very special show. Mm -hmm. Nobody had a huge ego who worked on it, I have to say. Mm. It was very much everybody pitched in, everybody worked together. And because the thing was that they really were my family for four years because I spent all my time with them. Oh, she was the best. I like her so much. And I like her even more now that I know she's a fan of the pod. Thank you so much, Josephine yeah. Mitchell. Thank you, Joe, And thank you. Joe shares our podcast all the time and she's so yeah. generous on her Twitter with us. So thank you. She's the best. She's the best. Kim, who is your fashions of the field? There are so many in these episodes. Well, uh, yeah, I know I should comment on the wedding dress. And I did actually really like her veil. I liked the length and the angle of the veil. And I do want to give an honourable mention to high-waisted jeans as worn by Joe, Michael and Kathy Hayden because high-waisted jeans are back. I don't wear jeans, but high-waisted jeans are back now. And Mabel does not approve of them. 
Mabel's not a fan. Mabel misses the low rises. But my pick is actually a pretty fab blue and white shirt dress that Esme wore to Joe's hens do. And if I found that at Vinny's tomorrow, I would snap it up in a heartbeat. I would wear all of Esme's clothes from yeah. Vinny's. They're all fantastic and they look like they're good quality as well. Mm. Speaking of good quality, I'd like to choose Alex's green wedding number. Alex's outfits the whole way through, as usual, are just wonderful. She is the fashion queen of season is season eight or nine. I kept getting confused. This is nine. Season nine with this. I loved, like you, the high-waisted jeans and Joe's bright pink T-shirt. In fact, Kim, I always feel like the great regret of my life is that pink doesn't work for me and mm. that reminded me of that. But also I loved Shirley's leopard skin dress at the hens, again cut on, you know, down below and flaring out like her fabulous wedding dress. Could go on and on. I thought the fashion was <laughs> you loved out of, of control, it. yeah, in this episode. Do you know what I was pondering today as uh, my daughter dragged me to the toilet for the 50th time and not 50th, she doesn't have diabetes <laughs> for like the third time today. She likes me to um, observe her toileting. <laughs> but I was thinking we were talking about colours and she mentioned pink. And I thought to myself, why is light red called pink but none of the other light colours are called anything? Like Light yellow is just still yellow and light blue is still blue. Should we have my feminist spray for the week? Sure. No, I'm only kidding. There would be some there, there would be something. Did you know along that pink used lines. to be the boy colour and blue used to be the girl colour? I don't believe that. Is that true? I mean yeah. really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's why true. Th- why why why? So this is like a Victorian era thing and I think it was pre maybe pre World War One, don't quote me. But um it used to be that uh, pink was seen as a very strong, bright colour and therefore boys should wear it. And blue was seen uh, was as a softer, more gentle colour and much more feminine for girls. How interesting. I don't actually know what flipped it, how it changed, but I'm sure it has something to do with marketing. Yeah, something to do with marketing and something we could do a feminist spray on, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> okay, so Kim... <laughs> Um, you can find those pics on um, our Facebook page of the Fashions of the Field. Yes, that is a country podcast on Facebook. Mel, you're on Twitter. Yes, I am at Melanie Tate, T-A-I-T. Kim, uh, you are also on Twitter. I am. I am at Kim Lester. Huge thanks to Josephine Mitchell for joining us, for Mike Pajanic for our theme, for Nate Edmondson for reimagining it, and to Aaron Miller for those great articles about Sid Halen. Yes, very, very cool. And if you haven't done it already, please like us and review us at iTunes. Thank you so much for sending us um, some fantastic reviews this week. That was really lovely. It really was great for our self-esteem. So thank you so much. But for now, we're going to, we're going back to Wanda (laughs) Valley. Yes, and we are going back to season two. Actually, this is one of my favourite ACP episodes, Mel. Really did, although it's very sad, but I'm drawn to sadness. Um, we're going back to season two. It's true, I am. We're going back to season two, episodes seven and eight. The episodes are titled Mates. Oh, Check them out. Strongly recommend, but have some tissues with you. Kim, have some good weeks in between. I will. Thank you, Mel. Bye. Bye. Bye.